Um, if you're here for the first time with us, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. You know, we hope and pray that uh, New City Church would be a place uh, and a people where you could grow deeply in the Lord. Um, today we're, right, we're jumping right back into the book of Judges. We'll be in Judges chapter 3 today talking about leadership. You know, the, the book of Judges is in the Old Testament. It's the seventh book of the Bible. Uh, it's like the seventh book of a 17-part series in the Old Testament um, that highlights the history of God's people, um, the people of Israel. You know, last week in chapters 1 and 2, we saw the introduction to Judges. Uh, we saw uh, the state of God's people, how God's given them land to live in, and how obedience to God uh, was a key element to God's plan. And we find out real quick in Judges um, that obedience to God, apparently it's not the easiest thing um, for God's people. God told them to clear out the land, and yes, they did exactly as God said, um, but not entirely. They were about 95% obedient, uh, and they allowed for idol worship to remain in the land, um, which as we saw, that did not work out very well for Israel. Um, no, they quickly turned away from God and began to worship these other false gods. Um, and before we dive into chapter 3 today, looking at this idea of leadership, um, we're going to see three different leaders that God raises up in these judges. They're called judges. And I want to first say, just as a side note, uh, that over these next 10 weeks, we're covering about 400 years of history in the book of Judges. Um, from Exodus to the end of Joshua, it's about 230 years, um, over five books. But in this one book, we're covering almost double the amount of time. Um, so this is a major part of Israel's history that is helpful just to, for us to understand, for the, to, to really know the rest of the Bible. Um, but then also... Um, next, kind of as, a, as we get into, before we also, before we get into the judges, I want to take about eight or ten minutes um, and dive headfirst into the deep end. Um, looking at something that's totally unrelated to this idea of leadership, kind of swimming in this theological deep end with um, something that we just can't ignore as we uh, kind of preach through this book. You know, normally we kind of wade slowly uh, into the sermon, introducing the theme of the text, <laughs> trying to kind of prepare our hearts a little bit, uh, but... Uh, we're not doing that today because there's something we see throughout the entire book of Judges that I think is likely a barrier or an obstacle to some that we need to address that's just important. Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's pretty unrelated to the rest of our time, so we're going to address it at, at the beginning of our time. Um, and again, we're doing this because here at New City, we don't skirt past the hard things of the Bible because they're unpopular or hard to wrestle with. Um, no, we tackle them head on to strengthen our faith. Uh, and this is just one of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible, um, through the whole book. Like you can't, you can't skip past uh, the hard stuff. And so I want to address two things um, that are like, again, while your minds are fresh, uh, and to say it directly and bluntly. Um, first is this idea that God would call his people to go into war and to kill people. And then secondly, that God would test his people through war. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that doesn't seem very nice and loving. Like this seems to go against this idea uh, that God is a God of love and peace like we hear and talk about often. And here we are in the Bible where we saw God tell his people to go and conquer all of this land that he would give them to go into war and just to destroy everyone. And we saw this in the book of Joshua and we saw it last week in, in chapters one and two of Judges. And we see it again today in chapter 3. Look at, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left, uh, left to test Israel by them, and, is all, and that is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And then it goes on to say all who those people are like it talks about in verse 1. But we have to ask, why would God do this? 
why would God have his people uh, go and conquer all of these other people and then just to take their land? And then also, secondly, why would God test Israel, like it says in verse 1? And I bring this up for several reasons, and one of the reasons is because it seems to go against this idea that God is a God of love. And, and, and maybe this doesn't seem like love, and I think for many this can seem pretty confusing. And I also bring this up because unfortunately, throughout history, this has been misunderstood as reason and validation for Christian crusades, as reason to kind of go on these killing crusades uh, to spread Christianity, and we must just say out the gate, um, that is totally and absolutely wrong. Like This is part of the dark side of Christian history where they just totally missed it. Because when Jesus came onto the scene, he totally flipped all of this upside down. Because Jesus, he didn't come bringing war, but peace. And Jesus, he made that very clear. Again, there's absolutely no reason or validation in Scripture for us today to go on any killing spree in God's name for the purpose of spreading the name of Jesus. No, that's not from God, and that's totally from the enemy. But we have to ask, if God doesn't want that for us now, well, why did God do it back then? Like, that still doesn't seem very loving. Maybe asking, like, isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? And the answer to that is, well, yes, absolutely. God does not change, and he has not changed. And as soon as we say that, it seems to put us a bit in a bit of a bind or maybe a pickle. And so we have to kind of ask, or we must kind of take a, a step back and ask, what was God's reasoning for wanting to get rid of all of these people? Like, maybe this seems like super intense hate from God. But New City, the reason God wanted this and did this was not because he hated these people, but rather because he hated the false gods they worshiped. God created the world for his people to worship him and not for any other false gods. So in essence, this was the wrath of God put on display towards a rebellious and disobedient people. Because if God, if he is perfectly holy and good and right, which he is, that means that the opposite of that must also be true, where sin and evil, like, he just can't and won't tolerate that. And he must be totally put away. And maybe we think, well, what about all the innocent people? And to that we have to say, well, none of them were innocent. They were all guilty. They were all worshiping these false gods, and they were essentially spreading false idol worship that came from God's enemy. And when we think, well, what, why doesn't God do that today? Why doesn't God do that to us? And the answer is found in the gospel. It's because all of that wrath, all of God's wrath that we see put on display in the Old Testament, it went on Jesus at the cross in the New Testament. Again, Jesus changes this entire narrative. Instead of God's wrath going on disobedient and rebellious people like we see in Joshua in the book of Judges, it went on Jesus instead of us. And to that we have to say praise the Lord. But then also... Let's notice what it said in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. The second, that second thing that we have to wrestle with. That it said God did this to test them that they might know war. And there's so much more we could say here. But to keep this simple for us, just to say it another way, God allowed some of these things to happen in the next generation so that they too would also know what it means to trust the Lord. And I know this may be hard to wrestle with, but we have to agree that when we go through trial and hardship, it puts us in a place where, like, where we're just dependent on God, which in the long run, this grows our trust in our worship of the Lord. And again, I know we're in the deep end here, and at the end of the day, uh, but at the end of the day, as we saw last week, God wants 100% of our trust in worship and obedience and nothing less than that. 
And the greatness of the gospel tells us that when we fall short of the perfect trust and obedience, the gospel tells us that Jesus, he stands in the gap for us. He fulfills what we could not and cannot fulfill. Church, this is one of the many reasons why we make such a big deal about Jesus. Because without Jesus, we only have bad news. We'll say this over and over again in Judges. Judges is the bad news, but Jesus, he's the good news. And so yes, there's a, uh, we're in the theological deep end, and we're like eight and a half minutes in, uh, but like we'll, we'll need to swim around these things, and these things can be hard at times, but in the end, with all these hard things to wrestle with, church, Jesus, he always sends us afloat. He all, like when we're in the deep end, he gives us a float to keep us, to keep our head above water. And again, I know we're only a couple minutes in and just covered some big topics, but this is Judges. It gets pretty heavy pretty quick. And here we are in Judges chapter 3 uh, in, the, in a really dark scene where God's people, where they've totally turned away from God. And we're left wondering, what, what is God going to do? And what, we'll, and what we'll see God do over and over again in the book of Judges is that we'll see God raise up a leader. He'll raise up a judge to rescue and deliver God's people. Like this is a repetitive and a continual cycle all throughout the book. God's people turn away from God. Uh, they get to a point where they cry out to God for help. And then God sends them a judge to save them and to bring them back. And then they go through a season of peace, at least until the, that judge, uh, that leader dies. And then it kind of starts all over again. So today we're going to see the first three judges uh, that God raises up in chapter 3. And what we'll see as our main idea today is that God raises up leaders to fulfill his purpose. And again, I know that is a hard left turn from where we just came from. Um, but this is a major theme in the book of Judges. Again, God's people need help, and then God raises up a leader to help them. And as we go through these three judges, we're going to see, number one, Othniel, the first leader. Othniel, the ideal inside leader. Ahu, the unexpected leader. And then number three, Shamgar, the resourceful outside leader. And as we think about this idea of God raising up leaders and God raising up people to help his people, I want us to just stop and think about this for a second. And I don't think this should surprise us uh, because we see this kind of true in our everyday life. When we're down or discouraged, God often uses a person or a friend, uh, the people around us to encourage us. Uh, or just from a secular standpoint, if you're not a Christian, I mean, I, I think you can still uh, see this to be true. You know, in school and in sports, when we're struggling, we need a teacher or a tutor or a coach to help us improve and get better. In, in, in organizational leadership, you know, I think when uh, in businesses or in team or leading teams, strong leadership is essential. When also in families, when strong leadership uh, is not present in families, the family struggles. You know, one of the reasons, in just my own personal opinion, that Christian business leaders often, um, I think, do so well in secular society is because there's so many leadership principles in the Bible that are, are God-given and God-ordained that show us how to lead people. And in a lot of ways, this is how God created us. He made us as a people to lead and to step into leadership. And no, not everyone's called to lead uh, at the same level and in the same way. But yes, everyone who's called Jesus Lord has a calling on their life to lead in some capacity. Whether it's leading teams or, or groups of people, leading in the home or at work, in the church or in your marriage, or just to lead people to Jesus or, lead, or just to simply lead people around you um, to, love in God more, to, love, to know and love God more. I mean, part of making disciples is leadership. And, and God has given this call to make disciples to every Christian. Again, discipleship is leading people to follow Jesus. And, and in discipleship, we're basically saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And one of the questions I just want to ask us today 
is do you see yourself as a leader? That's, that's a simple question. Do you see yourself as a leader? I mean, if you're a Jesus follower, God has called you to step up and lead in some capacity. And the question is, where is that happening? Like, how are you leading? We're all leading in some way, but my guess is uh, maybe we just don't realize it. Or maybe it's a bit of a struggle. And so just ask, like, how are you, how are you leading lost people to Jesus? How are you leading in your home? I mean, husbands, are you, are you lead, how are you leading your wife? Moms and dads, how are you leading your kids? I mean, just think, again, how are we leading the Christians around us to remember the Lord? How are we leading in the church? And just so you know, one of my hopes for today is for everyone to walk out of here inspired and equipped to lead in some way. And if you're saying, well, I'm not a leader, or I don't think I'm leading very well, well, today's for you. I mean, I, I might even say after we see our text today that just maybe, um, maybe you're a prime candidate to lead. And as we get into our text, we're going to look at these, the, the concept of leadership, again, by looking at these three different leaders that God raises up with Othniel, Ahud, and Shamgard. You know, Ahud, he's the, uh, the most popular of the three. He's got the most dramatic story of the three. And my guess is Othniel and Shamgar are pr- probably pretty unfamiliar to many of us. But as we see these three, we'll see how God raises up leaders and also what he looks for in leaders. Again, I know we kind of started off in the deep end, but as we set the rest of our trajectory for today, I'm hoping this will be encouraging for us because I have no doubt if God has called you to himself, he's called you to lead. Brothers in Christ, God has called you to lead. Sisters in Christ, God has called you to lead. We'll see this even more next week uh, as we look at the, the, the story of Deborah. Like, sisters in Christ, God has called you to lead. And I think this will be, uh, will be encouraged of how God thinks of leadership, maybe opposed to how our world views leadership, because there is a difference. And so let's keep going in chapter uh, three, starting in verse seven. We're gonna see our first judge, uh, judge named Othniel. So we're gonna, I'm gonna read and teach some. And so let's, let's look at chapter three. Look what it says in verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So that should be no shock here. Um, this will keep happening. God's people turned away from God and served uh, these other false gods. In fact, Asheroth specifically uh, was known as the fer- fertility god. Um, to say this another way, it was, uh, it was seen as sex as religion. And so that's where God's people drifted away to. And we'll see God's grace for them is incredibly relentless. But how quickly we see how they just forgot the Lord. I mean, this is a reoccurring theme in the Bible that we see over and over again that we easily just forget the Lord. We forget about his goodness. We forget about his mercy and grace. We forget about his faithfulness to us. And what do we do? Well, we often will turn to, other, to things other than the Lord. And so because of this, we're called in the Bible regularly to remember the Lord. You know, I love how Pastor Tim Keller puts it in his commentary that we're using uh, throughout this series He says, our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we daily smash the ice that is forming. And and yes, we may know the truths of God. We may intellectually know them and maybe be able uh, to like remember them, but we don't often remember them at a heart level and our hearts can easily grow cold. I mean, there's something incredibly God-ordained and special about just daily coming to God in his word in a slow and an unhurried way and just humbling ourselves before the Lord uh, in prayer and confessing sin to others. I mean, these things, they just keep our hearts soft towards the Lord. So they forgot the Lord. And then it tells us uh, God grew angry. They served these other gods. And then notice what it says down in verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaan, Caleb's younger brother. And so when we see this said, like we're gonna see this said over and over again, and when we need to be thinking, like, wow, that's incredible grace that God has shown them. I mean, God's people, they rebel, and yet uh, when they cry out, every, almost every time, he shows grace and mercy again and again and again. But with what we just read, they cried out and God raised up Othniel, who says it was Caleb's younger brother. And if, if you remember um, from the book of Joshua, Caleb served alongside Joshua. Uh, and, and so here's Othniel, a blood relative of Caleb, who was faithful to the Lord. He, uh, Caleb um, uh, obeyed God. And so I just imagine Othniel, you know, as Caleb's younger brother, who was regularly speaking of the faithfulness of God, and, and I just kind of imagine him maybe telling him the story of Jericho uh, and all the battles that God fought for them, like, as we saw in Joshua. You know, I think it's fair assumption to believe that Othniel was likely right there with them during many of these miraculous moments. And I also think it's fair to say that these likely spurred on Othniel's faith. And this is our first judge. Number one, Othniel, the ideal inside leader. And the reason I say inside leader here is because he came from within the people of Israel. Again, he, was, he has witnessed the faithfulness of God, even if it was from a distance. But he still saw it, he still heard of it, and it still spurred him on. And Othniel, he stepped up and led God's people back towards faithfulness. And I bring this up because there's something really special about raising up leaders from within. Like that's what we wanna do here at New City, seeking to be just like a leadership factory, raising up leaders. There's something special about people who have experienced God's goodness and faithfulness together, and then it spurs them on, spurs us on to lead. You know, one of the things that I was able to witness as a young leader that has spurred me on to believe uh, greater in the power of God to save was seeing over 100 people baptized in a single day at one location. I'm just seeing lines of people along the sides of the room waiting to get in the waters of baptism just to be baptized as a declaration of faith. And have we seen that happen here? Not yet. But you better believe I pray for it. And I have a lot of confidence that God is able and can do it again. And why? Because I've witnessed it. I've seen it with my own two eyes, not just once, but several times. And what has that done for me? It spurred me on to pray and lead towards that. And there's no doubt the people we're around, they heavily shape us. The churches and the people that we're committed to, they will shape us. This is why being committed to a healthy local church is so important because the church, it shapes us. When we choose a church, we're saying, this is how I'm being transformed. Like this is the direction of my transformation. And this is what happened with Othniel as he was watching Joshua and Caleb. But what I wanna make clear here as, as I say all of that, is that Othniel, yes, he was the leader chosen from within the people of Israel, but what we must understand is that being from the inside, inside that is not what made him the ideal leader. And so what, I have to ask, what made him the ideal leader? Well, look at verse 10. It says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Like, that's what made him the ideal leader. And look what it says. And then it says, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. That's a fun word to say. You know, the only thing that made Othniel the ideal leader is that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was living out of the power of God and not the power of his own strength. 
You know, I, I think it's fair to say a lot of other people, they also came from the inside, but they tried to lead out of their own strength. But Othniel, he was led by the Spirit of God. He didn't depend on his own strategy or his own skill set. He didn't depend on his military prowess. No, he was the ideal leader because God was on his side. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. He wasn't the ideal leader because of his charisma or his social skills or his speaking ability or his military prowess. No, he was the ideal leader because the Spirit of God was upon him, period. That's it. Which leads me to say, if you're a follower of Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus, that means the Spirit of God is not just upon you, but the Spirit of God is inside of you. And the person who is led by the Spirit of God and not led by their own flesh, that person is the ideal leader. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much influence you have. I don't care about your education, what you've accomplished, or what you have not accomplished. I don't care how old or how how young you are. If the Spirit of God is in you and you're following the Spirit's lead, you're an ideal leader. And the exact same is true the other way. You can be a billionaire with charisma and education and experience and social influence out the wazoo, but if the Spirit of God is not upon you, as far as God is concerned, you're not the ideal leader. It's that simple. If we're looking for a leader, look for someone who is walking closely with the Lord. And so how do we best prepare ourselves to lead? Well, it's not by reading a bunch of leadership books, which yes, I do, and I think it can be really helpful, but that's not the best way. It's not by thinking up the best strategy. No, it's by walking closely with God and begging for the Spirit of God to pour out upon us. I mean, this has been made very clear since the very inception of our church, Acts 5.39. If this is from man, it will fail, but if it's from God, it cannot be stopped. So that's Othniel. The Spirit of God was upon him, and he led his people into a time of peace, just as we see in verse 11. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. So they had 40 years of faithfulness to the Lord. The land was at rest. There was no opposition, but what happens? Their leader died. He didn't last. And then look what it says next in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So here they go again. Yet again, they turned away from the Lord. So 40 years of faithfulness followed by 18 years um, under an opposing king named King Eglon. Uh, uh, That name just sounds like a bad dude, right? For whatever whatever reason, uh, the picture that comes to my mind for him, for King Eglon, would be Ursula from The Little Mermaid, okay? Uh, Except this would be like if she had a twin brother. That would be King Eglon. And y'all, I didn't notice this at a first reading, but what commentators say here is that those three verses that we just read, they essentially show the reversal of what God did in Joshua and in the Exodus. They went right back to slavery under a ruthless ruler named King Eglon, just like in, uh, in Egypt under Pharaoh. And what did King Eglon do? He took back the city of Palms, which is not to be confused with Tampa Palms. Um, no, no. Uh, It's actually better known as Jericho. So the city of Palms is Jericho. God God gave Israel Jericho by walking around it and blowing trumpets and shouting. Um, This was just a total work of God as we saw back in the book of Joshua. And here in Judges, we see all of this come undone as soon as they walk away from the Lord. 
I mean, it, it was taken right back by King Eglon. Again, this is why we've titled this series The Unraveled Revival, because everything God did is becoming unraveled, and we're only halfway into chapter 3. And so, New City, this should remind us yet again how quickly the enemy of God will step in and mess up God's work when he's given the opportunity. But in saying that, we must also know that the enemy, yes, he's certainly at work, but God's plan is always bigger I mean, God is playing chess while the enemy is playing checkers. Because look what it says in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to King Eglon, the king of Moab. So the enemy was kind of wreaking, wrecking havoc, and what did the people do? Well, they cried out to the Lord. And what did God do? He answered. And just as a side note, you know, what a privilege we have to cry out to the Lord. Right, prayer, yes, it's a weapon, but even more so prayer, it's worship. It shows God is worthy. And so what did they do? They cried out to God. And what did God do? Well, he sent them another leader. His, he's, they sent him, or God sent them Ahud. And interestingly enough, it says that he was a left-handed man. And to us, maybe we don't think much of this, but to the readers at the time, they likely would have thought, um, that's like an interesting, unlikely choice. I mean, everything in the Bible related to the right hand shows favor and honor. I mean, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Isaiah 41.10, God says, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Whenever we see right hand in the Bible, it's a positive thing. The right hand, it shows power and ability. And this is not just in the Bible, but we also see this in everyday life. Whether we like it or not, we live, I think we can agree, we, we live in a right-handed world. And as I was thinking about this this week, you know, I, I found some pretty interesting things about our left-handed brothers and sisters. I'm not personally left-handed, um, but I just want to emphasize the point here. I, I, I think many left-handed people would agree with me. Um, there are several downsides to being left-handed. Um, if you're writing ink, you have to be careful not to smear the ink. And when you sit down to eat, you have to be careful where you sit down and eat uh, because you're going to bump elbows with others. Um, baseball, softball, as kids get older, there's, only about, there's about four positions you just can't play being left-handed. Instruments and golf clubs are often not best catered to left-handed people. Um, but to be fair, for every downside, there's also upsides to being a lefty. In fact, I saw a medically reviewed article uh, from 2018, just to kind of uh, help us out here a little bit. It says that lefties are generally smarter than righties. Um, apparently, they also are better at multitasking and better at video games and also better at fighting. It's kind of that like surprise punch from the left. Um, but apparently, just a fun fact, lefties can also, this is medically reviewed here, uh, lefties can also see better underwater for whatever that's worth. But I bring this out because Ahud being left-handed was a big deal. In fact, Judges 3.15, in the original language, commenters point out it literally meant he was unable to use his right hand, meaning his right hand was likely impaired. He was likely handicapped in some way with his right hand. And so in saying that he was left-handed, it was showing a sign of weakness and a severe disadvantage from the world standard, which leads us to number two, Ahud, the unexpected leader. Again, Israel cried out to God, and God sent them an unlikely but capable leader that was fit for the task. I mean, from, uh, from earthly standards, he likely would not have been picked first, but Ahud was God's first pick to go up against King Eglon. And so now, um, it's, this is story time. This is, like, it, this is the fun part, at least for me. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Judges. Um, I don't know what it says about me, but I find this story kind of funny. 
I read it to my kids. They also found it funny. Um, these are the types of story growing up that uh, my mama wouldn't let us tell at the dinner table. Um, this would have been considered polite or maybe rude. Um, Mom, I, I know you're watching. Uh, don't be mad at me. Uh, I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. I'm telling it, but as the story goes, Ahud, he makes a double-edged sword, a dagger almost, uh, about 18 inches long. He bound it under his right thigh, and he went to King Eglon to give him a tribute from the people of Israel. And, what, and then what it says about King Eglon, it says in verse 17, this is an important detail. Look what it says. It says, Eglon was a very fat man. And so he goes to the king. He presents him this tribute from Israel, and he sends ev- everybody out. And then Ahud, he says to the king, I have a secret message for you. And so he sends everyone out of the room. And so now it's just Ahud and King Eglon. They're kind of hanging out there in the roof chamber. Uh, And Ahud says, Eglon, I have a message from God for you. And so Ahud, um, he gets up and then he kind of inches close to him. And look what it says in verse 21 and 22. And Ahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the, flat, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. So this is a pretty graphic scene, right? He, gets, he stabs the overweight king, and then it says poop comes out of him. I mean, these are the stories we think, wait, that's in the Bible? Uh, well, yes, that's what it says. It says the dung came out. And then it says in verse 23, Then Ahud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him. Uh, When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw what the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought surely he was relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So the guys, they're outside uh, waiting. They thought, man, the king, he must have really had to go. Uh, Maybe we should just kind of go wait outside. Um, Apparently, maybe they were smelling something. And then it says, uh, and then they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chambers, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And so Ahud, he killed the king, and he got away, and they sounded the trumpet, and they celebrated, and they gathered the people, and they led him into war, defeating the Moabites, getting their land back. And then it says at the end of verse 30, the land had rest for 80 years. And so God used... An unlikely, an, an, uh, an unlikely man, a likely disabled man to defeat a ruthless king and to lead God's people into one of the longest stretches of peace that we see in the book of Judges. And what this shows us today is that God often uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes and that it can often happen in very unexpected ways. And there's so much more to say about this story. And we'll, we'll say a little bit more. But before we do that, I want us to get to our third judge. Look what it says in verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. So Shamgar, he just gets one verse. He's the third, ver- he's the third judge. Um, we could easily just kind of pass over Shamgar. But what's interesting about Shamgar is that his, his name, specifically his name, suggests that he wasn't from the people of Israel. No, he was considered to be an outsider. So the origin of his name, many commentators will say he was possibly a Hittite, which, um, again, those are some of the people that God told them to drive out. He told them, God said to get rid of them. And so everything about his name says this man was outside of God. God's people showing us number three, Shamgar, the resourceful outside leader. And I don't want to harp on this too much, 
because there's only one verse about Shamgar, and I know it can e- easily seem like a big jump um, for what I'm about to say based off of just the origin of his name, but I found it interesting that God sent someone to lead his people that wasn't from the inside like Othniel, but he was from the outside. Like this would have been like a, a very countercultural. This would have seemed very odd. Most commentators will say it's almost like this guy, he just kind of came out of nowhere. It says he grabbed an ox goad, which is like a long stick uh, with a blade on the end of it, and then it, he just killed 600 Philistines to save God's people. Showing us again, as we saw with Ahud, that God often works in very unexpected ways through very unexpected people. And so in many ways, Shamgar shows how God loves to use all people, regardless of their heritage and background, but also how God loves to give us unexpected blessings and deliverances in all sorts of ways. I mean, Shamgar, as far as we know, came and went pretty quickly. Like, not much was said about him. He's, he's mentioned once, um, like, in, in chapter 4. Um, but yet, uh, he made a big impact, and he saved God's people, it says. And so we can't miss the grace and kindness of God to do what he says he will do. Like, God will go to all sorts of lengths to orchestrate and ordain and order events to bless and fulfill his purposes in ways that we often don't even see and that sometimes that they just don't make sense. And they will leave us saying, like, I'm not sure how this happened. Only God could have done that. You see, this is the God we serve. And may we not lose sight that God is always working. Like this, is the, this, this was one verse about one seemingly random guy named Shamgar. And we, and we see God say, hey, go save those people. And he did it, but he killed 600 people with a stick. And the only thing that makes any sense about this is the hand and power of God. Again, Acts 5.32, if, if, if what we're doing is from man, it will fail. But if it's from God, it can't be stopped. You know, I can't tell you how many times... Just stories like this have happened in the past three or four years of our church where we labor and labor and labor and maybe it seems like nothing's happening and then God seemingly out of nowhere just sends unexpected blessings that make a huge impact on our church. No, God doesn't always work like this, but I can't help but point out that we can't discount the unexpected blessings that God sends as an act of kindness to his people. Again, God often uses unexpected people to work and lead in unexpected ways. And as I say this, I can't help but think and see that this is exactly what God did when he sent Jesus as the ultimate deliverer to save the world from our sin. Again, all three of these judges, yes, they delivered God's people, but, but as it says, uh, they didn't last. No, they all died. God's people continued to rebel. And so what did God do? At an unexpected time in history, after 400 years of silence, God sent an unexpected deliverer in an unexpected way to rescue his people. God sent his son Jesus down into the world as a human to be born as a baby in a manger among a bunch of farm animals to a young lady who was a virgin. And then as Jesus, as he grew up, he showed up in unexpected ways, performing miracles and eating and spending time with both the insiders and the outsiders. Jesus spent time with Jews and Gentiles. He spent time with the religious elite and the outcasts and the rejected, with the prostitutes and with the tax collectors. Jesus went to the disabled and helped them and he called them to himself and then used them for great kingdom causes and when Jesus the rescue of the world came he didn't deliver God's people through great military might but rather through the unexpected way of going to the cross to die and rescue and pay for the sins of the world 
Like Jesus didn't come to give military power like we see in judges that transforms lands. No, Jesus came to give God-given power that transforms the hearts of people. Like Jesus didn't come for more land. No, Jesus came for more hearts. New City, Jesus came in an unexpected way for an unexpected people like you and me to give us unexpected grace that was displayed at the cross. Jesus came to die so that we could live. Jesus came to give up his life so that you and I could be with God. And why did God do this? Why did God want to rescue us? Because he wants to use us. And he wants to fill us with his spirit to lead God's people and to build God's kingdom. And because he loves us. And we see here in Judges chapter 3, like this is not an isolated event. No, throughout the entire Bible, God has used the weak of the world to shame the strong. In fact, the reason the story of Ahud has so many crazy and just kind of seemingly silly details, like this was written, it was written that way for, for King Eglon almost to be laughed at and kind of almost shamed a little bit. And we're supposed to laugh as we read this. And it shows us how God often uses, the, used weak, how God used weak Ahud from the world standard to shame strong Eglon. New City, this is what God does. God uses people without any resumes and people who we would never expect to build God's kingdom. And what does he do with those people? He puts the spirit of God in them and he has them follow his lead to accomplish his purposes for his kingdom. New City, if you call Jesus Lord, there is no doubt God wants to use you to lead. Again, it doesn't matter about your experience or your church background or your education or your age or your social status. No, if you call Jesus Lord, that means you're empowered by the Spirit of God and God can and will use you. Like God absolutely delights and has a strong history of using a ragtag bunch of people to turn the world upside down. Like God doesn't turn the world upside down through large crowd or through large events. He doesn't turn the world upside down through strategy or marketing or compelling charisma. No, God turns the world upside down by using people like you and me to lead in a spirit-filled way in our everyday life. Again, I don't know what God is calling you to, but I know this. God has called you to lead. And if you're struggling to know how or where to lead, I know our church, we have a lot of opportunities for everyone to step up and lead in a lot of different ways. And come and talk to us about it. Talk to, talk to your groups. Talk to me. I would love to have that conversation with you. Like the amount of opportunities we have for leaders to step up and lead, it far outpaces our leaders. I mean, we're always seeking to develop leaders. This is what our groups are for. This is what we do in our serve teams. But just think with me about all the opportunities just to lead. I mean, the opportunities we have on campus to lead others to Jesus. I mean, it's unreal how much opportunity there is just to build relationships and do evangelism and to disciple students. I mean, just think about this. If we had 25 people doing full-time ministry on campus, I think we'd just begin to scratch the surface of what God could do. I mean, here's just a small example of just a, of, of another opportunity. Every Wednesday, there's a, there's a bull market where we could host a table or just help out with the table to help students get connected to our church or to work alongside other organizations. And you know what we need to do that? A leader. We need a few leaders and a few people to do it. Here's another one. I, mean, I can't help but think about of the amount of high school and middle school students we have within 10 miles of right here. Yes, we have a youth group on Sunday nights and it's going well and our students are growing and living on mission. 
But just think about how much opportunity we have to reach the 80,000 high school students around us just within 10 miles, during, like just reaching them during the week, going to them. And what does it take to do that? It takes leaders to go and to reach them. Yo, we just finished Serve Week, and there's so many opportunities to lead outside of Serve Week with, those, with these other organizations. I mean, the, the, like the opportunities are endless. I mean, just here on Sunday mornings, here with our church, and we're praying for our First Impressions team to triple the amount of leaders that we have. And we also have several people who lead on our worship team, but there are also still more opportunities to lead. I mean, here, here's something else. Just want, this is the last thing. Yo, we're looking for people just to lead and to gather people throughout the week, like outside of our city groups, just to help people connect and maybe just have fun together and build friends within our church. Like this takes leaders. We could go on and on about all the opportunities to lead. Honestly, they're endless and they always will be. I mean, there are 7 billion people on the planet, half of which have never heard the name of Jesus. Uh, And like the needs for people to step up and lead, again, they're endless. But what I'm trying to get at is that God calls everyone to lead. And all of these leaders we'll see in Judges, they all look different. But what we see today is that God uses those that are filled by the Spirit of God and that submit to God's ways. And who are those that are filled by the Spirit? All those who call Jesus Lord. All those who believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the, from the dead. And so, but what, was, what, what must we do? We must walk in the Spirit and lead in the Spirit. And what we'll see through the book of Judges is that, yes, God calls one leader to step up and lead an entire people. But us today, he doesn't just call one leader. No, he calls the entire church. He calls all people, every Christian to lead. He calls people in all walks of life, old, young, rich, and poor. And again, the question we need to ask is where is God, where is God calling you to lead? And as we end our time, you know, I can't help but think of how so much of this can seem like just adding to our to-do list like great now I got to do one more thing no that's totally not the point in this no the point is to lead out of the overflow of what the spirit of God is doing in your life like we can't and we we don't we won't live we won't lead out of our strength no that's the exact opposite of what we want we want to lead out of the overflow we want to lead with out of our delight in Jesus being filled by the spirit and leading out of that like that's what Othniel did the Spirit of God was upon him, and he just followed the Spirit's lead. You see, that's the call today. To find rest in Jesus. To delight in Jesus. And while you're there, just ask the Lord, like, where do you want me to lead? And for those that have leading or, or are leading or know where they're leading, like, it's all still the same. The call is still the same to slow down and to rest in the Lord and just see what God does. Would you pray with me? God, you're so good to us. You're so kind to us. God, you call each and every single person who calls the name of Jesus Lord, you call us, you call us to step up and lead. And God, would you, would you inspire us? Would you work in our hearts? Would we just sit and rest in Jesus today? God, if there's anyone in here that is not called Jesus Lord, would, would the Spirit lead them to you? God, would you call people to yourself to to turn to God and to give their life to you? God, we ask for your help. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.